We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and not sure this is a great idea. Order! Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will, and I'm joined by my co-host Conrad. Hello. And in this episode, we are delighted to be once again joined by the elections politics and policy analyst for Star Sports Betting, William Kajani. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you again. Um, So, first of all, uh, I would like to ask, uh, the Labour leadership race is going on at the moment. What are the odds looking like for the different candidates? So, Sakir Starmer is well ahead. He is a one to four shot to succeed Jeremy Corbyn. Um, basically, as an introduction to our fractional odds, if you put four pounds on Sakir Starmer and he wins the Labour leadership race, you get one back. It's nine to two, Rebecca Long Bailey, nine to one, Lisa Nandy, and then it is 66 to one, Emily Formbury. So, so here starts basically um, taking the bulk of the market there. And the market currently thinks that he's pretty much home and host uh, or close to it. A one to four shot is basically 80% on the dot. So um, do, do you um, think that there are any sort of events that may change these odds that are coming up in the leadership election? Um, it's possible, I think, that um, some of the hustings and live debates will change people's minds. Um, now, there, there have been already several hustings. Um, we've seen them, the leading candidates go and get support from the unions. We also saw the open labour hustings, which was a very interesting um, day of debate. There are, I think, said to be a couple of... TV debates. I think Channel 4 are doing one. And I think they could have a reasonably big impact. But the issue here really is that sort of, I think most of the candidates have played their reasonably big hands. And with Sakir Starmer, even though I don't necessarily think he's home and hosed, um, it's much like the Conservative leadership race when Boris Johnson was going on and all he needed to do was to not have, um, you know, an absolute horror show happen to him. And that doesn't look like happening for Keir Starmer at the moment. Um, It's interesting to see uh, Keir Starmer as the odds-on favourite, because a lot of people um, before the election, before the leadership contest started, thought that Rebecca Long-Bailey or someone perhaps more from the uh, traditional Corbynite wing of the Labour Party would be likely to succeed Jeremy Corbyn. Why do you think that she's not doing quite as well as people thought she might have? Well, I think, number one, uh, when people are looking at the makeup of the membership, they look through it um, with a factor of only Corbyn and you know, looking at support for Corbyn as the one X factor. Now, yes, he's, I think, still pretty well supported by Labour members considering what happened in December, but many of them do, I think, have fears that Long Bailey, um, whether this is right or wrong, would be seen as the continuity Corbyn candidate. Now, 
personal opinion Claxton here, I don't think that's particularly fair against Long Bailey. Um, I think it's pretty clear that she's got her own policy aims, mainly really kicking on with the Green New Deal, mainly trying to reframe the most popular policies um, that Labour had in the 2019 manifesto. But perception plays a huge part here, and I think a lot of Labour members um, are a bit disconcerted by the idea that the next candidate could basically fall um, to the same sort of attacks that Corbyn did. Uh, and this is the sort of Keir Starmer electability thing, right? Um, which is that, for better or worse, here is a polished-looking guy in a suit um, who doesn't get half the attacks that um, Rebecca Long-Bailey does, or maybe even to a point Elisa Nandy might get, oh, and what luck, you know, he's pro-EU, but the EU debate for now looks settled, so why not? I think there are other reasons, by the way, that um, Sakir Starmer is pretty popular. You have to remember that a lot of Labour members and a lot of Remainers, which is where Labour, rightly or wrongly, get most of their voters from, uh, think he did a very good job as Shadow Brexit Secretary. I think he did, personally. Um, but the Long Bailey thing, I think, has been a mixture of worrying about the Corbyn legacy in effect, and also, and this is, I think, also quite important, her campaign hasn't had um, that sort of spark or the energy that, say, Nandy's campaign, I think, has. In the sense that there were new ideas that were being put out there, lots of really sophisticated policy, and she was sort of a new, fresh face, and that energised people a bit. What do you think went wrong for Jess Phillips and um, Clive Lewis, who are the two candidates who originally ran and withdrew? And also, why certain candidates like Dan Jarvis and Yvette Cooper didn't decide to run? Um, with Jess Phillips, I think the one thing that really unseated her was basically that she wasn't constructive enough. In the sense that Jess Phillips was seen by the membership, and this was a general view I had uh, when I spoke to Labour members about her, that uh, she was seen to basically always be attacking Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership without really offering um, a solution to you know, the problems they were trying to fix, the problems with the leadership that was constructive and sort of forward-looking. And, you know, because she's not the only person to have spent quite a lot of time criticising the leadership. But when it came to the campaign, um, bar her childcare policy, which did get a lot of universal recognition as being a, a good policy, a strong policy, not a lot of people knew exactly sort of what she stood for. The, the feedback I got from Labour members was basically, I don't know what the MO of Jess Phillips is, I don't know that she's in, really in it for anybody but herself. As for the other candidate contenders, um, the makeup of the Labour membership has changed a lot since even 2015 or you know, even further back 2010. Yvette Cooper and Dan Jarvis, um, you would presume that their support would come from the same Labour members that backed, let's say, Owen Smith in 2016. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that 
that wing of politics is greatly diminished within the Labour Party. Um, and for all Cooper's skill in, you know, being on the select committees and uh, parliamentary talents, that's not necessarily the only thing Labour members are looking at. You know, it's a different party from uh, 2015 when I think those two would have been contenders that would have had chances. And as for Clive Lewis, um, I think with Clive Lewis, he was reasonably popular amongst pockets of the Corbyn supporting Labour membership, but there were concerns that some on the left had about him, especially with his comments over women as well. Um, and there were other sorts of moments of contention too. With Rebecca Long Bailey, she's much more universally admired um, and has been for quite a while amongst the left, who I think were always going to tally around sort of one candidate. Um, now, of course, the Labour le- uh, deputy leadership race is also going on at the moment. What are the odds looking like for the deputy leadership race? Right, so we've done a different thing here. Um, because Angela Rayner is considered so far clear, um, even more far clear than Sakir Starmer in the leadership race, um, we've got a market for the second place in that event, which basically will mean whoever gets the second most votes from those who make it onto the ballot. So Richard Bergen is an 8 to 13 shot, um, in other words, a 61.73% chance. Um, Ian Murray is a 4 to 1 shot, that's 20%. Dawn Butler is 11 to 2, that's 15.38%. And Racina Allen Khan is a 7 to 1 shot, that's 7 to 1%. Now, the, the deputy leadership race, um, I think most people have Angela Rayner as the nailed on winner um, for a number of reasons. I think she's always been pretty universally admired within the Labour leadership. Um, she did, I think, very well, that's a personal opinion, um, or has been doing very well as a Shadow Education Secretary, uh, one of the most capable media performers. I think also somebody who much of the general um, population wouldn't have a significant quarry with, um, despite all the attacks. You know, she's not, I don't think, seen as being linked to Corbyn in the same way that Rekha Bailey is. Again, I'm not saying that I agree with that. Um, and also, you know, I know that uh, this might seem sort of a tad typical given that Sakir Starr is out in front um, so far, but it probably wouldn't hurt the Labour Party to have um, a woman as its deputy leader. I think that might uh, be playing a factor. But the, the main thing is she's a very high-quality candidate. Um, and if you talk to a lot of Labour people, they are, or at least they were wondering, why was she not going for leader? Which I think would have been a very competitive race. Now, um, the Labour Party isn't the only party, sort of centre-left party, picking its standard bearer at the moment. You've, you've just had the Iowa caucuses in America. Yeah. Um, we still haven't got all the results, even though it's, <laughs> um, it's been, um, been a few days. Um, at the moment, it looks like it will be a, a narrow win for Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, over Bernie Sanders, but those two are quite close, and then Warren, and then, San- and then, then Biden uh, coming in fourth. Um, has this changed the odds for the um, Democratic nomination? It has. Um, yesterday, um, about this time yesterday, um, Bernie Sanders was a fighter to four shots for 
to be the nominated Democrat candidate. Now, we've had some pretty significant market moves because Bernie Sanders is now 13 to 8 shots to win it. Um, that's a fair bit bigger than 5 to 4. Um, his odds actually have, his, or his percentage chances have actually come down. Um, 5 to 4 is basically 44%, give or take. 13 to 8 is 38%. Michael Bloomberg has seen his odds cut. Um, he's now a 22% chance or 72. Joe Biden is a 4 to 1 chance. And Pete Buttigieg is a 5 to 1 chance. So you've now had a pretty big turnaround. The, the market's reacted pretty strongly to... I'm using like bunny fingers around results, right? Because we haven't got the results. We've got 62% of them. But even though Pete Buttigieg didn't win by that measure, um, he really outperformed his polls um, in Iowa and also the national polls. He, he was up there and he'd been surging, but this sort of confirms it. Now, you have to take the caucuses with a pinch of salt because some areas weren't counted that would have favoured Sanders. But it seems pretty clearly that there are now, I think, probably five realistic contenders um, for the nomination. And the betting market is giving an awful lot of respect to a candidate who wasn't even on the ballot in Iowa, uh, Michael Bloomberg. So basically, we might not have seen the beginning of anything yet in a Democratic candidate race. And we have to remember, it's a very, very long time. The election itself, November, um, you're talking weeks, months until the convention. And even then, there's a chance it could be a contested convention, uh, 15% or so, according to 538, the last time I looked. Um, why do you think that, for example, Joe Biden, who was seen as the very much the front runner, uh, in this race and other candidates for example uh, Beto O'Rourke who has uh, now dropped out and Kamala Harris why do you think certain candidates like them are perhaps not doing as well uh, as people thought they would and why do you think that um, Bernie's doing so well Bernie Sanders do you think that this is partly um, due to the uh, 2016 um race for the Democratic nomination, or what do you think is going on? So with Bernie Sanders, um, I think his recent resurgence is explained, I think, partly at least, basically, by his policy platform. Now, it's not the only policy platform that is obviously a really significant departure from, say, what President Trump is offering, but it offered the energised left of the party um, another go at having the nominee for president. Now, he's not the only um, left of centre Democrat there, definitely not, but we have to remember that everything that he's personally backed, stuff like um, proper single-payer um, Medicare, you know, a single-payer healthcare system, um, taking off tuition, uh, cancelling student debt, etc., um, levelling up the economy for a range of measures that would presumably empower those who are struggling to make ends meet, etc. Um, all that stuff is really widely popular. Um, and the policy platform, if anything, has probably become more attractive to the same people who backed him four years ago because they had to live through four years of President Trump. Um, 
and yes, by all means, you know, the economy is doing well in America or better than I think people expected at this point, but that doesn't help people who are working in, say, the gig economy or the service industry, where the margins are constantly razor thin and everything, every week is a breadline week. So I think the Sanders coalition is hardened, if anything, by what's happened in the last three years. As for Biden, um, with Biden, his campaign has seemed to ride on the fact that he's the former vice president. It's riding a lot on his branding and his closeness to President Obama. Um, now, that's a very strong mix in a democratic affair, of course, and you know, Obama is pretty much the most popular Democrat out there. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you've got to have, I think, your own popular policy platforms, your sort of own defining issues on things. And the Biden campaign hasn't seemed very energetic in the same way that um, Elizabeth Warren's campaign was, or the Sanders campaign is. Um, and it's not as if Biden is the only, and again, I'm using bunny fingers here for quotes, he's not the only moderate there. Um, Pete Buttigieg offers people that choice, and there's a hell of a lot more energy around his campaign than there is Joe Biden's. Uh, and also, Biden isn't the only compelling story, which is something that does matter, I think, quite a lot to the people who are voting um, as they look to November to take on Trump. That on-the-ground enthusiasm uh, is something that there just might be more of um, in other states of Joe Biden, but I don't think his campaign has gone as well as I think people who are backing him um, all the way back in uh, October, etc., of last year, for. Now you mentioned other states for Joe Biden. Now we've got um, the next sort of three events. You've got um, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Um, South Carolina, from the polls, seems to be Joe Biden's strongest state. He's got a lot of support amongst African Americans. Do you think the Iowa result will sort of shift later states, or do you think that the um, sort of what's gone on with the reporting on the caucus is still not really having full results out? sort of lessen that bounce that a winner would usually get? It definitely helps Biden, the fact that 100% of the results haven't been released and there's more attention on the DNC and their handling of the shambles of the Iowa caucus than, say, Biden's really bad performance. According to the results, he was fifth um, and sort of in a close race with Amy Klobuchar for fourth. Um, we must be careful of not putting all eggs in the Iowa basket, but it tends to be a pretty strong um, predictor. Uh, you know, I think of all the last five nominees to be the person to take on president, at least um, one of them is either one Iowa or New Hampshire comes first or second in Iowa. Um, so it's a bad result, but that said, other states will have demographics that suit Biden more. And I think he's waiting and now counting on the vote from people of colour. Um, but Sanders has surged in that department, so I don't think people of colour is an area that's locked down for any Democrat. So the Biden campaign, I think, uh, has to work ahead of it. Uh, we're also uh, going to be seeing Senate elections 
this year. What are the uh, general consensus regarding the Senate elections? The Democrats seem to be quite optimistic about potentially taking the Senate back. Do you think that's a realistic option? Depends very much on who votes and who turns out. Um, the key X factor was generally acknowledged to be suburban women, uh, many of whom were white, sort of going away from Trump in the midterms. A lot of it will come down to demographics and a lot of it will come down to the economy. At the moment, the numbers are good for Trump. Um, he scored 49 on a Gallup poll, which was um, you know, the best... I think of his presidency um, or his active presidency. I think also he might actually be ahead of where previous existing incumbent presidents um, were at this stage of their campaign, um, which is ominous for the Democrats. But regarding the Senate, um, the map was against the Democrats in 2018. It's more in their favour now. I think what would need to happen... Um, would be that they would still need to see a gradual drift of white suburban women away from Trump if they're to flip some of the more difficult races um, in their favour. And it remains to be seen, basically, what their main concerns are, what people think of impeachment, because, you know, it's pretty certain that he's going to be acquitted. Does anybody really remember much of the trial in a few months I think the I, I think the answer is probably not but will anybody be convinced or more convinced by what Trump did with Ukraine than the Trump-Russia links I think the answer to that is much more open um, and I think personally Ukraine is much more damaging for Trump in the sense that there's much more provable evidence um, and the independents seem to lean that way as well. Oh, by the way, Gallup said that 63% of Americans approve of Trump's handle of the economy. That's the highest any president's got since George Bush after 9-11. So if those numbers don't move, Trump becomes a very, very strong chance to be re-elected. And he's four to six would start um, to be re-elected in to, to make that simpler, basically, pretty much around 56% or so, you know, we're putting him over halfway. Yeah, so you mentioned sort of Trump's sort of election and re-election odds. Um, do you, so you mentioned impeachment a bit. Do you think that there, there is likely to be a shift as soon as he's acquitted that is sort of in mindset that, oh, well, he must have not done something wrong? Then, or do you think, or do you think the people will be paying attention and sort of look more into the nuances of the partisanship that you see in America these days, being more the reason? There's definitely lots of partisanship. Um, I think we we know basically that Democrats will believe that he's guilty and should be impeached, and Republicans will believe it's a hoax, right? I mean, Trump has something like 97 percent approval in the Republican Party. The independents are key here. And the polling suggests that most independents think that he acted either wrongly or that there is a great deal of suspicion regarding his actions uh, with Ukraine. The issue is, basically, is that enough of a motivating factor to turn people out against him by November. 
I think it's probably more likely that the economy, healthcare, maybe climate um, would be ideas and X factor issues that could turn things against Trump. Uh, Now, to move back over to this side of the pond, on uh, Saturday, we'll be seeing the Irish general election. What are the odds for the uh, result of the general election at the moment? What's the general feel of what the result could potentially be? Okay, so in terms of the next T-shock, Mikhail Martin um, of... Fianna Fáil is a nine to one on shot to become the next T-shot. Basically, it's very likely, according to the betting markets, that Leo Varadkar is going to be out of office um, by the time a new Irish government is being formed. The, who who makes the new government it is a much more complicated issue. Um, the Fianna Fáil Sinn Féin coalition, and we'll talk about Sinn Féin in a minute, is seven to two. Um, uh, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition again, 6-1 to one. Uh, Fianna Fáil the Greens and the Independents as a trio 6-1 to one. a minority Fianna Fáil is 9-1 to one. Fianna Fáil and the Greens 9-1 to one as well, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin and the Independents 12-1 to one. so you can see from that market that it really is all up for grabs and a majority basically is really much out of the question given that Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin who have been surging in the polls are all but um, tied although Sinn Féin has surged the lead in some of the quality polling recently um, I'm thinking the Ipsos Mori poll which has them about 25% so the themes of the election basically have been domestic and there's a lot of parallels to 2017 in Britain where we were widely expected to have a Brexit election, but actually domestic issues came, you search things, and people looked for a change option in some parts, and in the end, actually, there was a shock result. In shock in the sense that the Conservatives didn't have a big majority. Here, um, you have maybe not such a shock, um, results, although we don't really know what the result will be, I don't think it's easy to predict anything. But you have a similar situation in the sense that Ireland's housing crisis, which, by the way, is absolutely appalling, um, might be even worse than London's or Britain's as a whole, and pressures on healthcare um, are the driving factors in a, a Sinn Fein surge, which sees them actually polling really quite strongly with people coming towards the end of Generation Z, um, which is basically, set say, 30 to 40-year-olds. And the crossover age, much like it did in Labour um, in 2017 with Labour, is now growing for the point that people leave Sinn Féin and move to the other parties. Now, that's really interesting because Sinn Féin aren't even actually running a full spread of candidates. So you now have a situation where the leading party in the polls might not get the most seats. Well, Sinn Féin the 16th to get the most seats. So it's really all up for grabs. Um, We're coming to the end of the podcast. It's been great to have you on again, William. You're always more than welcome to uh, come on again. Awesome. Um, And I'd like to ask one final question. 
yeah. the Oscars are coming up very soon. Yeah. And I just wondered, if you're ever nominated for an Oscar, uh, what do you think you would say in your exception speech? <laughs> um, I would probably thank everybody at Star Sports and say something funny like I love you mum and then just walk off the stage because I couldn't really be asked with the constant <laughs> culture wars that I know any sort of political uh, any sort of political speech would surely bring on um, I, I think just one of the nailed on things of each award ceremony speech will be that somebody will make a speech calling for more diversity in the movie industry or they'll make a speech about the 2020 election or they'll make a speech about a personal life experience and make that political and then what will happen is there will inevitably be a furious backlash because that person is rich and famous and therefore not allowed to have an opinion and yeah that'll be it well uh, I think that's something that a lot of people would agree with. Uh, thanks once again for coming on to the podcast. No worries. Really good to be here, and I look forward to coming back in the future. Uh, we look forward to having you uh, back on in the future. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can do on Spotify, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes, as well as Podbean. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do at the debated podcast. If you would like to uh, send us an email about anything you've heard on the podcast or potentially wanting to appear on the podcast, you can do so at the debated podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.